This episode of Voices in My Head is brought to you by Podbean. With Podbean, you can create professional podcasts in minutes without any programming knowledge. Best of all, everything is mobile-ready right from the start. Visit podbean.com voices to find out more. That's podbean.com voices. Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, a songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is where I discuss music, movies, books, pop culture, theology, and more with friends, colleagues, and sometimes just by myself. Now make sure to let me know what you think of today's episode by leaving me a review on iTunes or by tweeting at me at Rick Lee James on Twitter. And please join my mailing list at rickleejames.com where you can receive an email every time a new episode is released. And by the way, in case you're interested in a daily dose of kindness and encouragement beyond this podcast, I also run the Twitter account at MrRogersSay where I post daily quotes from Fred Rogers, one of the voices in my head. Well, I guess that's it for the intro, so sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of Voices in My Head. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I'm your host, Rick Lee James, and I am so glad that you can be here with us today for a very special podcast. This is different today because a lot of my interviews, I would say most of them are on the phone or over Skype, but today I'm actually with a very talented artist named Reed Jones, and he's going to be playing some music live on the show today, and I'm very excited about that. Let me just read a quick bio about Reed, and we'll get going with our conversation. Reed Jones is a musician, a multi-instrumentalist, a singer and songwriter, faith journeyman, a husband, a father, a teacher, and so much more. Heavily influenced by bluegrass legend Tony Rice, Jones has played with bands like Unlimited Tradition, Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers, Cumberland Gap, and the acclaimed international bluegrass act Audie Blaylock and Redline. With Redline, Jones helped record I'm Going Back to Old Kentucky, which boasted several charting singles, including the number one Cry Cry Darling. Jones also wrote and recorded The Road That Winds, the title track off Redline's 2016 release that was featured as the theme song for the Travel Channel series Back Road Gold. Redline's most recent release, 2019's Originalist, contains four songs that Jones wrote or co-wrote. Of those songs, The Gate Called Beautiful from Acts 3 and Love is an Awful Thing have both reached number one on the bluegrass charts, with the latter holding the spot for three straight weeks. Reed Jones is here with me today to share some coffee, some conversation, and some live music. Reed Jones, welcome to Voices in My Head. Thanks for having me, Rick. I really appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you here today, and I appreciate the coffee that you you just did pour over coffee for me this morning, and this never happens on the podcast, so I'm so <laughs> grateful to have it today. Hey, I'm glad to be able to make it. I love sharing <laughs> coffee with people. Well, that's it's a wonderful gift and a wonderful coffee from Hemisphere Roasters. We're going to put a plug in for them later in the show as yeah. well, but it's kind of a neat story about that. Uh, but I'm so glad to have a chance to, to visit with you today, and I wonder if we could begin by having you play your number one song uh, that you had recorded with Ollie Blaylock and Redline called The Gate Called Beautiful, Acts 3. Sure. We will. We'll give it a shot here. See if we can't do that this early in the morning. Right. 
mind. I did little no, quiet harmonies no, there with join you. Join right in, man. That's great. <laughs> it's a lovely song, and I'm really glad that you shared that with us this morning. Um, there's not a lot of songs written for Max 3. So no. It's, it's kind of fun to, to get to hear one, and then yeah. one that's done so well. And it obviously has been connecting, or it wouldn't yeah. have gotten the radio play. Sure, right absolutely. It did. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the song. Yeah. Um, I, I can probably, as I said, count on one hand the songs I've heard written from mm-hmm. Acts 3. Maybe on one hand. I don't, right. I don't know. Um, but what drove you to, to write a song about this particular scripture? Um, well, I'm, I'm kind of inherently a word person. Um, and just the naming of things I think is interesting. And I was, at that time, my church had been doing a... Uh, it was like a time for prayer every Wednesday evening. We would get together and we would reflect on a certain passage of Scripture. Um, and Acts 3 was the chapter, and we would spend some time um, just reading some reading the Scripture, sitting in silence and reflecting uh, on what God might be saying through it. And as I was reading this story, I just thought, how inherently beautiful is, mm-hmm. is that? Or poetic is mm-hmm. the name, the gate called beautiful. Yeah. It's just so, there's a natural... Um, poetic nature to it and so as I was leaving that night and I'd spent a lot of reflect, re- time reflecting on it I thought well I wonder if anyone has ever written a song mm-hmm. about this particular um, thing because I, I love the, the power of the restoration story the healing and hope that is offered I mean you start thinking about that individual's life mm-hmm. you know this, this guy who had been um, disabled from, from birth and he was brought to the gate every day to beg Mm-hmm. And you don't really get any a whole lot of story after the healing. Um, you know, he gives a little bit of testimony in front of the Jewish leaders of the day, but really, you don't get a lot from him. And I thought it's such a powerful story, and such an inherently poetic phrase that something should be done with it. And yeah. so I had this was in 2012, um, I think, and I went home and thought about writing the song from the perspective of the beggar. Um, I like that idea of, you know, you think of Jesus and the upside-down kingdom and the idea of how he kind of flipped the whole power structure yeah. um, of religion on its head. And I thought, well, to tell it from the perspective of this beggar, yeah. I'll try to do that in a couple verses and choruses. And so I, I wrote the song, um, I wrote it once and then rewrote it um, shortly thereafter just for brevity's sake because the song's kind of long as it is. And so... <laughs> I hadn't done anything with it, and I don't, I don't really do a lot of song pitching or things of that nature, and it just never really felt like there was the right time to do it. And then, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, this last record we were recording with Audie Blaylock and Redline, and I thought, well, this, we might, this might fit well here, and I think this, I think maybe it's time to do something with it. And I don't know um, what God has planned for that song, but I still feel like there's, there's, there's more there, just be, not because of the song, but because there's such a powerful message. Yeah. Um, to you know this this idea of um, offering hope and healing and restoration to people that are that are in need of it, whether it's spiritual healing, emotional healing, or physical healing, or financial healing, whatever it is. I just think there's it's such a it is such a spacious song. There's so much room for people to f- to find their own brokenness mm-hmm. within it, and I know that in that way, it's it's the song has been a blessing to me yeah. um, as as a songwriter and just also as as a Christian just attempting to find what broken things do I have that I need to, mm-hmm. to allow to be transformed well I always 
Yeah, I was rereading that passage again this morning a couple times through from Acts 3 just because I wanted to make sure it was fresh in my mind. And uh, I was reminded of of a quote by Thomas Aquinas. And, of course, in Acts 3 is that, um, I I guess, semi-famous verse of, you know, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And um, there's a story from, I think it's in the 1200s, and Thomas Aquinas um, and a religious leader uh, once visited. And I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but uh, uh, once he once visited the Pope, and uh, the Pope was showing him all of the treasures of Rome, and just all the beautiful buildings and the gold and the riches that they had. And the Pope said to Thomas Aquinas, he said, Well, Thomas, no longer can the church say, Silver and gold have I none. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Aquinas replied, Yes, Holy Father, but have you ever thought that the church is in danger of also not being able to say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk? <laughs> and I, I, I don't know if you'd ever heard that no, story I before, but I, yeah. I thought of it as I was reading through the passage again. And um, that it's, it's, a, it's a powerful and convicting passage of Scripture mm-hmm. because I don't know that I've ever seen it happen. You know, right. like where somebody could just go, I don't have silver or gold. Usually we go, here, let me write you a check. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that's what's really powerful about this is I think there's so many times we don't realize what type of healing we're actually in need of. And he, I mean, uh, the second verse of the song starts out, then a glance and a name, because obviously in the name yeah. of Jesus Christ, but he also, it, he, like Peter said, look at me. Yeah. And I always thought about what, what does that, what did that like look yeah look like i mean it was really in, intense like this guy i don't know if he was ashamed i'm sure just to sit there and to be begging and probably not wanting to meet somebody else's gaze yeah. but then you know for peter to be like listen i don't have i don't have what you think you need yeah but i have something that's far greater and yeah. i wonder how many times we ask god for things that we feel like we need but God has something so much greater sure. and we get discouraged when the times when we don't get what we want so yeah. to speak but there's just so much there's so many layers and nuances to that story that I think it's I think it's a pretty incredible thing and yeah. so it kind of blew my mind that there wasn't already a ton of things already like written out yeah. there song wise for that so well you know I think for for all of our Bibles and the internet and everything out there we're still one of the most biblically illiterate Societies, maybe, maybe more than we ever have. We we choose to look up cat photos and things rather than mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. And I'm guilty as anybody else as as far as that goes. But there is a rich uh, well to be written from in Acts, especially you know those stories that we have. Well, thanks for that song. It's really well done. And I, I want to go on because that is. Uh, a, a bluegrass song that it actually was on the, the bluegrass radio charts uh, that it hit number one right. and that's a pretty exciting thing yeah. um, but I want to talk about the way because you are such a versatile and talented instrumentalist you're a singer you're a songwriter you do all this but a lot of it's behind the scenes you'll mm-hmm. be playing guitar you'll be playing bass or on one of the albums you're even doing like Hammond B3 work right, yeah. and you play with a rock band too, someday morning, right. and uh, you're also with Bluegrass, uh, as, as we've already mentioned, and this was Audie Blaylock and Redline that recorded that song, um, but I want to talk to you about maybe the interesting connections and just get your thought on it. Um, 
the connection maybe that exists between like gospel and bluegrass music because every time I go to a bluegrass festival, half of it feels like you're at a church service. You right. know, they sure. they'll yeah. start breaking out songs, and yet the other half of the crowd maybe could care less about that. You know, right. yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, but also, there's this interesting connection too, which things that also don't necessarily seem to have a common tie, and yet they do. Like you're a rock musician as well. Right. And we had talked about just beforehand on the show. There's this interesting connection between, as much as everybody wants to give rock music like a hard time for being sex, drugs, and rock and roll type right. thing, there are actually a lot of really thoughtful and reflective spiritual writers mm-hmm. in, in that genre too. And we had talked about just beforehand, I think of somebody like Bruce Springsteen, who is an artist that he can almost be bluegrass at times. You know, he, he did that album a while back that was, was folk cover songs, mm-hmm. and it was all acoustic, and it was uh, it was not straight bluegrass, but it was a lot of the instrumentation, you know, mm-hmm. from and, and especially using music from the era it came from. So it was um, mandolins and, and banjos. There were some horns and things mm-hmm. like that. But then it's just as common to see somebody like Bruce Springsteen playing with Rage Against the Machine or right, some yeah, like sure. really heavy, you know, <laughs> rock band. And there's Springsteen with this these Catholic roots behind him. And a lot of times he dives into like these spiritual themes and whatnot. I just find it so interesting the way that all this music, as different as it is, is so connected, not only in its musical roots, but there is this certain spirituality about it. I just wanted to kind of pick your brain about yeah. your thoughts on maybe some of that because I have a feeling you have a few. Yeah, yeah, it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, I guess music is a product of culture, ultimately, um, people and their way of life. Um, it's born out of that. And so maybe speaking to the bluegrass gospel side of things, um, and you know, there's always been this dichotomy. In bluegrass, but has never been a dichotomy in my mind. This idea of Saturday night versus Sunday, mm-hmm. Sunday, Sunday morning. Yeah. Um, and so, the idea that that you know, think of country music and bluegrass, and you're talking about drinking and cheating and all of these kind of things, and that's a Saturday night activity. And then right. you know, those same people would get up and go to church on Sunday morning. Um, that's always existed and bluegrass being a product of a lot, a lot of mixing of cultures but specifically the Appalachian culture mm-hmm. um, which is where a lot of my familial roots are um, the, the the common thread between those two things for me is just it's real mm-hmm. um, and sometimes I think that religion specifically religion not necessarily just faith or spirituality but religion can seem so fake mm-hmm. and false and phony um, and you can find that same kind of phoniness on Saturday night at a club or whatever at the same yeah. time, people being who they aren't. Um, and I think that those, what, what it all comes down to is we all have, I don't know, some inner longing or need to fill, to fill ourselves with something. Yeah. And they can be filled with different things, and lots of times I feel like it's filled with a combination of the two. And as for me growing up in the church, having always heard church music, and I feel very fortunate that my parents enabled, were, they allowed me to listen to all kinds of different music. Um, and my parents would allow me to, to play different kinds of music. They would take me to places, um, not necessarily to shelter me from the rest of the world, yeah. but to teach me how to actually interact with 
the rest of the world. And then I, I got to doing a lot of reading and studying on, on some of the matter, and I, I forget what book it was in, but I, I do love A.W. Tozer quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And he, he talks about elevating the um, secular to the level of the sacred, and that this idea of a secular-sacred divide doesn't even really exist. Mm-hmm. These are artificial boundaries that we've all thrown up. And so for me, I think that like playing on stage, whether I'm playing... Um, at a rock club, it's still equally as sacred of a space. Yeah. I think what Jesus was most interested in was the relationships that he had and created with people along the way. And, you know, there's not a whole lot, in my opinion, that's more intimate than sharing the stage with someone else yeah. or bearing your soul to other people. Um, you know, as a songwriter, yeah. if I write a song and then say, hey, what do we think about for Redline, for example, well, Audie, what do you think about recording this song? It's a very, I mean, he's one of my best friends in the world. Mm-hmm. It's still a very uncomfortable experience to share something that you wrote and something that's that personal and open it up for yeah. somebody else's thoughts or opinions or scrutiny. Yes. And so relationships, I think, are so inherently important um, as they were to Jesus, as they are between an artist and a listener, between fellow musicians. And so... I don't think that I don't think that there should really be that much of a divide between between secular music and sacred music. Mm-hmm. Some of the music that I write, for example, like the Gate Called Beautiful, is not a traditional sounding bluegrass song. Yeah. And I think that sometimes bluegrass gospel can sometimes err on the side of being a little superficial mm-hmm. and um, erring more on the side of. Well, and I'm saying this having just sang for you a, a story <laughs> song, but just like stories yeah. and just like recounting that this happened. Whereas, um, at least in that song, I'm attempting to invite you yeah. in and say, where where do you fit in this? Yeah. And so that secular sacred divide to me doesn't really exist. Yeah. I can find God in the relationships I have uh, that cut across all genres, mm-hmm. um, all, all types of music. Um, I just think that we like to we like to put music into boxes, yeah, and we also like to put God in boxes, yeah. And if we believe in a God that cannot be encompassed by whatever boundaries that our intellect or whatever can place around Him, then why would music, like why would why would music that is intended to give Him honor and praise, how can that be placed in a box like yeah. that? Like I feel like. I don't know, sometimes I think we want to control it a little more than, than we probably should. We can just let go and say, That's, yeah. it's okay. Like, people, everyone everyone has this common humanity and this common need for um, for what's real. Yeah. And ultimately, what's real is, is God. Yes. And so I think, the rea- I think the thing about bluegrass and bluegrass gospel and rock music, and whether it's Springsteen or whatever, is, is attempting to get down to the roots yeah. of it and just what is real about yeah. it. And so if it's real, then how, I don't see how you can stand against yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good observation, the reality of it. And I, I think that's very good. I wonder if sometimes, you know, before the time of record labels, and uh, which, which you know a little bit about because you're a bit of a music historian yourself, but um, and maybe we can get into some of that later. But, you know, before we were so eager to, to maybe label everything, I think there was, you're, you're right, there's something that is... If it's universally true, it's going to resonate, you know, on some level. Which is why, 
to me, I, I find God in places that I don't think it was intended to be found, that God was intended to be found. Like, right. I'll listen to, like, music by Jason Isbell. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know that he intends for it not to be, but the songs are not necessarily about God. But I'll find these moments that I'm like, wow, something just moved in my heart that I think right. is so genuine and true to what I know of the Spirit moving, you know? Like, right. yeah. and, and I think it's I think that there is such a source of, of creativity that um, maybe none of us realize that we are tapped into when we are creating, right. you know? And, and there's something of the right. Holy Spirit that's moving in us and doing that, I think, so. Well, I'm struck by the, the phrase that you used, if, you know, something that is universally true. Mm-hmm. Well, in my opinion, there's really only one thing that is universally true, mm-hmm. and that's ultimately the Almighty God. Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of secular music and sacred music, all of it is is an expression. We just we like to we like to we like to know where the boundaries are and say, mm-hmm. well this person's in or this person's out. This is secular and this is sacred. Right. When if you view reality as God-centered and there's God in the middle and then we're all scattered about at various levels of closeness to God, then um, really all of music that is attempting to be uh, universally true is just an expression of of the same thing, of people at different proximities to God at different times. And sometimes I may be further away, sometimes I may be closer or what have you, but it's all an expression of the same thing. Yeah. And really, we all talk about as musicians, no, none of us create anything. Like, right. we all just, we're a product of our influences <laughs> and all of these kind of things. Well, I mean, all creativity, I think there's only one entity that has ever truly created anything. Yeah. And so I feel I'm most connected to God when I'm being creative because ultimately I think God is a creative and a restorative being and so you're right it's it's kind of like legos i'm only thinking that because my son is six and he really likes legos and he creates all the time Mm -hmm. but you know he didn't build the legos to start with like somebody gave those to him and i feel like music is sort of like that we're taking all these pieces and we're rearranging them and shifting them but i like how you said that you know the creativity doesn't start with us necessarily and yet don't we get joy you know when we watch children even if it's not like aesthetically like something we would think like oh this is a masterpiece but it's the fact of like seeing them create it and love it and enjoy it and just kind of love it in front of you while they're doing it it becomes so beautiful and so wonderful and you had talked about a minute ago you you didn't know you were doing the perfect transition but you were (laughs) when you were talking about not boxing in God and I'm going to quote you all right that's that's dangerous (laughs) Uh, you say uh, in, in the bio that you sent to me you said I think in order to be true to the creator we have to embrace the creative and restorative work he has wrought in each of us even if it doesn't fit in a neat tidy box. So I want to ask you about that. I had a conversation with another person on this podcast not too long ago, and we were talking about songwriting. And the way that... I have this theory that sometimes the way that we break out of the box creatively is to sometimes put ourselves into another box. Maybe that makes sense, but let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. If, let's say you are a straight bluegrass musician or something, okay? And you've decided, all right, I need to I need to break that mold a little bit. And you have somebody like, for instance, um, let's take Paul Simon, who I've used before actually on this show, who, I mean, everybody knew Simon and Garfunkel and, and all these kind of songs that were 
in that. But when he did that Graceland album, like he had to leave the box he used to be in to like create this South African, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like sure. groove. Mm -hmm. And so it was it was it's kind of always interesting to me like sometimes the best way to break out of one box to me is to like really force yourself into another one yeah. and it, which is kind of interesting it doesn't seem like it would work that way but it does kind of open you up to a new creativeness you wouldn't have mm -hmm. had before i just, I just curious what your thoughts are yeah. on that as far as unboxing from one into right. another yeah so it i keep getting reminded of this conversation i had with audie blaylock the, the band leader of redline you know, having spent countless hours, you know, driving down the road, just talking <laughs> about music and creativity, because yeah. we, we love all kinds of different music. And the way that I've begun to conceptualize it, and we've had this conversation a number of times, is that most people think that creativity means removing all boundaries. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, like, I think that, I think we need to listen to music and experience music without boundaries. But I mean, obviously certain things sit in certain genres or within certain definitions specifically I mean I live in a traditional bluegrass world where things are so specifically defined yeah and I actually like some of that um, almost down to the instrument if you don't have a mark it is you know? yeah right no <laughs> it's, it's, like... it's very true like it's it's so formulaic and it's already kind of pre-planned for you that this is the way it has to be otherwise it's not bluegrass but at the same time removing all boundaries to me as a creative person is so unbelievably crippling yeah it's like because then you don't have any space to exist within mm -hmm. and i think of songwriting and creativity in general is about creative problem solving so it's almost like you mentioned putting yourself in another box mm -hmm. the way that i the way that i conceptualize that is basically creating another problem that you have to solve. Yes, yeah, very um, good way to say that. And so, like, I think of it as, I think of songwriting as, okay, well, I want to work within these parameters. I want to try to do something like this, whether it's lyrically or musically or whatever. I know we, we had talked a little before, and maybe we'll talk about the song later, but Love is an Awful Thing, mm -hmm. um, was I, I, I created a set of parameters. I'm going to write a traditional bluegrass song. Mm-hmm. And because I don't do that very often, I'm gonna write a traditional bluegrass song, and it's only gonna have two chords. But I don't want it to sound like just another recycled melody and whatever. So there, I created a box, and I had to exist within that box and figure out a way to yeah. to get out of it, so to speak. So yeah. like, I think that creativity, humanity is is at its most creative when it's you know backed into a corner yeah. so thinking of just the most basic needs of figuring out how to survive or how to whatever I need a tool to do this I need um, in a relationship with other people or whatever I'm backed into this corner I mm -hmm. then you're creative to figure out how do I solve this problem sure. whereas if it's just everything is at your disposal yeah. I don't know how I can't create that way sure it's too overwhelming it's like, it's like a marriage only works if <laughs> There are some like like you stand at the altar and you right. say I will do this and I will not do that and right. you know it's sort of like and you have to make it work within those things or it does fall apart you know it's it's very interesting the way that life is structured that way it is. you know and I relating it to God once more and we're going to move on to an, another topic in just a second but I was thinking about just the the idea of being inside a box and I used to I had a church history professor that used to say you know because God has said to us certain promises and he has revealed himself to be this 
um, it's not that God isn't in a box, but the box is so much bigger than what we thought it was and what we could ever conceive or imagine. But God has himself said, I will be this and I am that. And so it's kind of interesting that even God himself, who, who we always think is, is much more vast than any of us, I think, could ever imagine, even himself seems to work in this... Uh, these self, these defined parameters that God has placed on Himself. Which, does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like this kind of trippy thing. and paradoxical. Yeah, yeah like. but but it seems like it works that way for us too. You right. know, like we all work that way. If we're made in the image of God, it's kind of right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, well, we could go on and on about that. I'm Absolutely. sure. But there's there's a lot. Yeah, go ahead. Pour yourself more coffee. After all, you made it. And it's yeah, wonderful. Do you want some more? I, I'm still working on the one I have, but thank you. Um, it's it's really good, and we've got to talk about uh, Hemisphere Roasters too in just a minute. But um, because you're not simply a musician, and obviously, as uh, I mean, nobody is simply one thing. They right. Can't yeah. Be it. But. Um, Obviously, from people listening to you talk today, you've got a lot of great thoughts on many things. And in many ways, you are a music historian. I already referenced it a bit, but you were heavily influenced by a musician named Tony Rice. Yeah. And you wrote a research paper in college on, on Rice's now legendary recording, which is called The Bluegrass Album. And um, your research paper that you uh, used, it was cited in the official Tony Rice biography called Still Inside the Tony Rice Story. Uh, what's it like to have a place uh, sort of not only in making music, but you're, you're sort of written into musical history now a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, like. I mean, I don't think that anybody would ever take look at those notes in the back of Tony <laughs> Rice's biography. Um, but that was, I had a I went to Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I had this history professor who taught a lot of my classes. Um, his name was Mark Metzler Salwin, and he was he's, he was just a fabulous history professor. And he it was very interested in like pop culture history, mm-hmm. and he knew that I was a bluegrass musician, and so he had always encouraged me to just explore that. And one of the most probably one of the the, the most formative musicians in my life is is Tony Rice. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who could exist within uh, the boundaries of traditional bluegrass and traditional bluegrass people will hold him up as like that is he's the, the best bluegrass guitar player or whatever but at the same time he totally like existed outside of that as well he did he did like the, the book's called Still Inside that was a, a record he did he did a series of records in the early 80s that were very jazz oriented you know he would do like um original stuff but then also a lot of jazz he just would do he was very famous for doing like Gordon Lightfoot songs yeah and I love Gordon Lightfoot but to me Tony Rice like it's like Gordon Lightfoot wrote those songs with him in mind yeah and Tony just I mean to me didn't write a lot of music himself but there's never been a better interpreter of music Mm -hmm. ever um there's just things that he does that I don't know they're just it's amazing tonally musically all of that and so to I had to write a a 25 page original research project my senior year and he said why don't you you know you play bluegrass you're somewhat connected to that Mm -hmm. community you probably can gain access to some of these people so I was like well I'm going to do it on at that time what was one of the most formative bluegrass records yeah so Tony Rice had a um, he was with Rounder Records and he um he owed them a bluegrass record. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, well, I'm going to just get together these 
people. So we got J.D. Crow on banjo, Doyle Lawson on mandolin. He ended up getting uh, his bass player at the time, which was Todd Phillips. And he got uh, Bobby Hicks, who was at that time was playing. He had played with people Ricky like Bill Skaggs, Murrow. He yeah. was playing with Skaggs at that time. Um, and so he, he put this group together, and basically he was like, I'm just going to record, I'm going to pay homage to the first generation bluegrass pioneers. And so they did all these old Flat and Scruggs mm-hmm. and Bill Monroe and Jimmy Martin and some Osborne brothers and all these. They were going to do that. Um, and he just called it, he was, Tony's really big into like blue note jazz records. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they would just like equally bill everyone, like their <laughs> name and whatever. So he called this this album the Bluegrass album. Yeah. And then it had everybody's name just kind of billed equally. Well, that ba- that became known as the Bluegrass album band. Yeah. And they called the Bluegrass album, volume Bluegrass album band volume one, because okay. they ended up doing six records, most of them in the 80s, but... Um, they did, I think, an instrumental record once Tony's voice started to fail much later. But um, that was the first one, and so that one was a big deal to me. And so I wrote a paper on it because it changed my life musically. And yeah. I got to talk, like I interviewed um, like J.D. Crow and Doyle Lawson, and I interviewed Tony Rice. I still have. I will never erase on my phone. I have a voicemail where Tony... Um, I'd missed his call oh. um, when he called for me to interview him and the voicemail is hey Reed this is Tony Rice and I'm like <laughs> I will never as long as I live ever erase that voicemail yeah. message because to me he is the like the ultimate in bluegrass guitar and even vocally yeah. back in the day so anyway that song or that paper ended up getting cited um, Tim Stafford was one of the writers um, that book he plays in Blue Highway uh, a very, very noted bluegrass band, probably one of the most influential bluegrass bands in the last 20 years, um, if not a little more. And then he, before that was when Allison Krauss in Union Station, mm-hmm. he at that time reached out to the, the lady I was playing with, her name is Billy Renee, that was Billy Renee in Cumberland Gap, and said, hey, I need to get in touch with your guitar player. Um, and so he emailed me and was like, hey, can I have your paper? And it's not like I'm some great authority on it, because I'm certainly not. And I think that now looking back, I would do that paper quite a bit differently than I did. But the sh- I think the sheer fact that somebody in an academic setting would write a paper like this is noteworthy enough to say, well, then yeah. that should probably be included in here because it, it demonstrates the scope of Tony's influence and career yeah. and the, the significance of it. That's true. Even though my paper was probably <laughs> not good. Um well, hey, would you mind, do you have a song, it doesn't have to be one that Tony Rice wrote necessarily, yeah. but as you said, he oh, was a man. great song. Maybe just like a verse and a chorus of one of his songs that you, really speaks to you. And you know, yeah, oh yeah. So Tony, oh, I'm just trying to think. There's so many things I could talk about and play with Tony Rice. I remember, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just do a couple of real quick things. Yeah. Um, he had interpreted the, the song Mule Skinner Blues. Mm-hmm. Um, he did it on a record um, called Cold on the Shoulder. It was actually the first Tony Rice record I, I got. And mm-hmm. this was like in the early 2000s. Um, the internet was not what it is now and what have you. But there was a bluegrass music shop in Columbus, Ohio. And so I had, on Tony Rice's website, I had found like there was a clip on, of like a little clip of several songs on each record. Mm-hmm. And so I went back through and was listening. And the one on Mule Skinner Blues was the intro he did to that and it blew my mind 
And so I called, I was like 16 or 17 years old, I called Bluegrass Music Shop in Columbus, and I said, do you have Tony Rice's cold on the shoulder? And mm-hmm. they're like, yeah. I'm like, I'll be there in an hour. <laughs> and so like I went and I, I, I got it, and I put that record in, and a CD in the in my car stereo, and he busts into cold on the shoulder, and I it's this guitar kickoff, and it, like, I don't know how I didn't like come out of my seat. It was like I've never heard somebody do that. Yeah. And then I think it's the third track on that is Mule Skinner Blues. Um, and again, I'm not I'm not Tony Rice. Yeah. No. That's... By any stretch, you know any. Although me attempting to be a bluegrass guitar player is just a failure of trying to mimic Tony because <laughs> he is the, the ultimate. But he goes, um, the intro, the thing that hooked me, and it's not going to be exactly like it, but he, is, he goes, Well, good morning, Captain. Good morning to you, sir. And then he, they, do you need a mule skin? And they all came in, and it was like, I had never heard anything like that before. It, and it's almost like blues. It is, like yeah. There's not, a, a big yeah. mixture of... Yeah. All of that is... It's just so Tony. I mean, and he took that. I mean, obviously, thinking of Bill Monroe and him um, taking some of the blues influences and an African-American gentleman named Arnold Schultz that was important in his life. And so, like, um, taking... He did things like the Rocky Road Blues or yeah. the Bluegrass Stomp or these different things that have... They're essentially like 12-bar blues. Yeah. And incorporating that. And then Tony... But guitar was always a rhythm yeah. instrument. And then Tony um, and Bluegrass essentially made it a lead one, building off of Clarence White's influence, who's very famous for having played with the Birds. And mm-hmm. also, you know, think of like... Um, on the Andy Griffith show, you know, yeah. like Tony played Clarence, he had the, the very legendary guitars, formerly owned by Clarence White, and you can see that guitar in, um, you know, on on the Andy Griffith show and stuff. Is that, is that like one that Andy would play? Or no, like, Andy or, always or, played a, a 50s D18. Um, this is a 1935 Martin D28, and you know, it it just I don't know. Everyone that I've heard that has actually played it, I've been close to it and I photographed it yeah. and what, but. But it was just wasn't the right situation where I felt like I could ask Tony to play it. Yeah. But everyone I know that has, it's like that guitar is just like yeah. it's not that great. Mm-hmm. But in his hands, in the hands of the master, it right? is magic. <laughs> it, it is purely magic. That's it's incredible. A, I will if I can give an album recommendation. I'll do I'll do a little bit of this one Jimmy Rogers song that Tony recorded. He did a record called Church Street Blues mm-hmm. that I think everyone needs to listen to. Okay, it's essentially um, he. It's him with the guitar, and that's it. Very, very minimal overdubbing. There's maybe one or two songs where um, his brother plays rhythm guitar with him just for like instrumental purposes. Mm-hmm. But to highlight Tony's ability to sing and to play and to interpret songs, it is just, it's a stunning uh, piece of work. Um, and he does this Jimmy Rogers song called Any Old Time. And again, I won't do it much justice, but it just, it's, a, it's an favorite Tony Rice thing, so I remember. It goes, I just received a letter down and out to say, at first I thought I would tell you to travel on the other way, but in my memory lingers, all you once were to me, so I'm gonna give you one more chance to
Keep your guitar in your lap because we're, we're starting to run out of time a little bit. But I want yeah. to have you close the show today in just a couple of minutes with with another one of your songs that has gone to number one and, yeah. and stayed there for a few weeks. And so yeah. we're excited about that. But there's so much interesting about you. I feel like we're going to have to do a, a follow up podcast. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome because we're going to we're going on and, right. and it's great and I'm just loving it. Sorry, these are I'm very passionate no, about all of these things is, and faith and music and this is why like, I record these things, yeah. man. I, I love getting to, to hear this and this is a very special episode. I don't always get to have live music on the show, yeah. so this is a, a treat for me. Uh, I, I just wish, my only regret is the people listening don't get to see your beautiful Gibson guitar. Oh, know, yeah. That, this is a know, cool guitar with a cool story, too, but maybe that's for another time. Yeah. Well, I, super I, cool we'll, we'll share about it another time for sure, but I, I do want to take a, a, a quick chance because, again, you're not all just bluegrass. There's a band that you play with called Someday Morning. Right. Not, not Sunday like the day, but Someday, S-O-M-E-D-A-Y. And uh, you guys have a great EP that's on iTunes, and man, it's it's like straight up rock and roll, and and it's really good stuff. I've been enjoying listening to that as well, and um, you know the band released their EP titled Day Broken, and you play various guitars on the album. You play Hammond organ on the album. You sing harmony vocals, um, and I, I just want to mostly encourage listeners to to go listen to that as well because it just kind of shares shows the the diversity and the talent that you have. Um, but a lot of people don't know that maybe in addition to all the talent they're hearing today, you're also a teacher. Like, yeah. you're, you, for your living, yeah. uh, aside from being a professional musician, you're a social studies teacher, which mm-hmm. is fascinating. And it's it's an interesting time, I'm sure, to be a social studies yeah. teacher right now. You're yeah. having to keep up on a lot of current sure. yeah. events. But um, you also... 
I, I wish I could touch on everything today, but we've referenced a couple times the Hemisphere right. Coffee Roasters. Yeah. So before we have you do this closing song yeah. today that, that I want you to do, you have a great story about this coffee that you and I are drinking today. And those of you listening, you can also be drinkers of this coffee Absolutely. if you hear this story. Um, but I want you to share, if you don't mind, sort of your partnership with Hemisphere Coffees and and why it's so special. And, and it's it's really good, by the way. Thank you for, for making this. It's pour over coffee and it's better than usual. But please, if you don't mind telling the story you told me just yeah. earlier this morning, it's yeah. a great Thank so you. Hemisphere Coffee Roasters is just an amazing company uh, run by an amazing couple. Um, their names are Paul and Grace Kurtz, um, and they live in Mechanicsburg, Ohio, and their background uh, is in mission, um, and they spend a lot of time in various parts of the world, uh, most of the time specifically around that belt around the equator where coffee is typically grown, um, and they just, to me, they are what I consider to be a very uh, accurate expression of what it means to be a Christian in our world, um, and that it's one thing to it's one thing to preach, um, it's one thing to use words, which that's very important. I would never negate that, but it's another to uh, live your life and um, be a fabulous example with your deeds, and that's exactly what they do. So they, there's a lot of exploitation that takes place in the coffee industry. Um, people who um, readily lose their farms, um, who are stuck in cycles of debt um, and are unable to pay them off as you know, coffee growers, um, and just a lot of you know, big companies and middlemen and um, foreigners that can come in and, and exploit local people. And so they saw an opportunity years ago, I think before the whole like direct trade, fair trade thing was like the hip thing to do, they were doing it because it was an expression of their faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they uh, directly import coffee from growers from around the world whom they have relationships with. Um, their motto is always, uh, you know, we shake the hand of the farmer. And so mm-hmm. it's, that again, that idea of putting an emphasis on relationship. Yeah. Um, and they literally know these farmers personally. And that, I think, can have a big impact in the quality of the product they receive because of um, there's no less than like a hundred steps between that the farmer does before that bean would ever get here, that all of which can have profound impacts on the final product. And so having those relationships can help in that respect, but I think more importantly, they are able to lift up coffee-growing communities all around the world. So uh, Redline Roast, which is um, a product of our partnership between Audie Blaylock and Redline Hemisphere Coffee Roasters, has several of those great stories embedded in it. Um, there's a, uh, a bean in there from Nicaragua, um, and there's a gentleman named Diego Chavarria, who is a, a Nicaraguan coffee farmer, um, who is able to um, lift up his entire community by providing gainful employment for people. And also, he, I think he's been somewhere in the neighborhood of like 30 churches, wow. I think, that he has been plant, that has been planted um, as a result of uh, Diego's faith and all of that. There's also a bean from Thailand where there are 80 women who now have full-time employment um, that were able to leave the uh, sex trafficking industry um, because that was the only option to them mm-hmm. in order to provide food for their families and now have gainful employment, been able to leave that industry and work um, on a coffee plantation there. Thank God. And so it's just really amazing work that they do. And um, they're just fabulous people. And so I had... Um, being involved in the Mennonite world had heard that, hey, there's these 
um, Mennonite people in Mechanicsburg that have a coffee company. And so I'd been getting my coffee from them for a long time, and then eventually it was kind of like, this could be a really cool partnership between um, our band and Hemisphere, and also a great way to kind of trumpet the, um, you know, to be able to share a story like that from stage. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes people will erupt into, you know, cheering and clapping, you know, kind of interrupting when you say there's 80 people that now, you know, are no longer part of the sex trafficking industry. Mm. It's like, you realize how personal and powerful these stories are. Like, these aren't just like, they're not numbers, right? These are human beings. Like 80 human beings. Yes. Lives change. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's a powerful story. And I just think they're just, they're great people. They do amazing work. Um, and so part of what we do in Red Line is, I mean, we sell Red Light and Roast, but we also, I just want to spread the news of, um, you know, that, again, that it kind of intersects with the gate called Beautiful that we did earlier, the idea of offering healing and hope uh, to a world that is full of brokenness. And I feel like Hemisphere is a, they're a great example. They're not a, it's not a nonprofit organization. They're, mm-hmm. they're a business. Yeah. Yet, you know, they're able to live out their faith and their business. They're able to make a living for themselves. Yeah without stepping on other people mm-hmm. in the process and lifting people up rather than pushing yeah. them down. It's just a really powerful thing, and I just think that it's a great example that business That's... people, that everyone needs to hear. It's just yeah. a, such a powerful story. So they're they're awesome. So it's I would cool. encourage you to check them out. It's one of those stories that I, I would want to start and say, and the kingdom of God is like... You right, know? exactly. <laughs> the story, it's great. Well, thank you for sharing not only music, but coffee specifically with me, but I'd, I'd really like listeners to look up Hemisphere Coffee and sure. find out more because they can buy that. Well, our time is, is coming to an end. We're about to reach the limit of what we have today. Um, real quick, before I, I do want you to share your uh, your song, Love is an Awful Thing, mm-hmm. which you talked about at the beginning and uh, has spent, I believe, three weeks at the number one That's charts right. on Bluegrass yeah. Radio. Uh, but before we do, where can people find out more about you and, and the bands you're involved with? Yeah, um, well, Sunday Morning has a, a Facebook page that we, we occasionally maintain. That's kind of a, a really uh, a fun band because we don't, it's not about, you know, becoming famous or rich. It's not about playing a bunch of shows. We just do it as a creative, like, this is a creative thing for us and it's a life-giving thing mm-hmm. so um, that one you can check out on Facebook but uh, Audie Blaylock and Redline we've, on Instagram Facebook we have audieblaylock.net um, you can find us there um, you know you can get all the Audie Blaylock stuff you can hear it all on Spotify and you know, get it on iTunes and Amazon and all the various uh, digital outlets um, but it's true. Not that hard to get a hold of. Um, so <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, perfect. Well, close the show for us today. And by the way, all these links uh, we're going to have on our website at voicesinmyheadpodcast.com. Uh, I actually compiled them last night, ready to put them awesome. on the website. So uh, it, it, it's going to be a place. So if you just want to go to one place to find all of these links that Reed is talking about, uh, just go to voicesinmyheadpodcast.com. And I'll try to make them as easily clickable as possible. (laughs) So close the show for us today, if you would. Uh, Play your song, Love is an Awful Thing, which has been recorded also by Audie Audie Blaylock and Redline. And so, yeah, I'll do this last one. And I just do want to say thank you for uh, for having me on the podcast. I hope that I'm not too long-winded because I I, I get so passionate about all this (laughs) stuff. It's just such a, it's a blessing to be able to share, um, you know, faith and um, music and, you know, history and 
coffee. Um, yeah. So all of that stuff. So yeah, this is Love is an Awful Thing. Um, this is off of Originalist, and it definitely sounds a lot different when you start having, you know, like blazing <laughs> banjos and sure. forward rolls and all these great things. But I'll just do a kind of a stripped down, maybe slightly slower version of the song. My attempt at writing a traditional sounding tune. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a traditional bluegrass song. Um, and again, all... Um, uh, all uh, the lyrics in this song, it's called being creative. It's like after I write a song like this, I have to tell my wife, listen, we're okay. Love is not an I'm, I, I'm inspired by the word awful and how you can be in awe of something, right. but then it can also be awful. So this is based on that duality, and it's not based on true events. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, <laughs> so, understood. Um, Your fork in the road and a mystery Sad song I can't help other places online thank you for being one of the voices in my head this hey, week. thank you for letting me take up residence there for an hour or so <laughs> thank you for joining me here this week on voices in my head i hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleejames.com where you can find out more about me get my music on vinyl and cd follow my blog and even schedule me for a concert or a speaking engagement better yet even a book signing in your neighborhood You can find all that and more at rickleejames.com. Also, it would mean a great deal to me if you could write a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast will be online. And now, for the benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you, and thank you for listening to Voices in My Head.